Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. This episode kicks off an occasional series I'm calling Empowered Evolving. We talk about empowered living all the time on Love and Life. We look to psych research and techniques from psychotherapy to help us, as former Love and Life guest Dr. Stephen C. Hayes, founder of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, puts it, take committed action in the service of our chosen values. We live empowered by living out our values, clarifying what they are, and then taking that committed action toward them and in the service of them. What are your values? Growing up, were you taught to remain open-minded, to listen and consider opposing points of view? Were you encouraged to be a lifelong learner? I definitely was. I think most of us were. Those values of being open, curious, and always striving for knowledge are inherent to the American educational system. But if we do remain open-minded, if we do thoughtfully consider opposing viewpoints, if we commit to curiosity as a lifelong learner, we may find we start to change our mind about things, even big things, even our values. Well, then what? What if through such reflection, we realize our current viewpoints no longer align with our former positions? What if we come to understand our values are out of step with those held by others in our circle? We've evolved. Empowered evolving entails honesty and commitment, a commitment to your principles, and courage. It takes a lot of courage to speak out when your community expects you to adhere to its belief system. Can we remain in a community while disagreeing with its stance on important issues? Will we be ostracized? Will we eventually need to seek out a new community which aligns with our new understanding of our values? Girl power rhetoric tells us to live out loud and be bold and stand tall and say what you got to say. And I think we've all experienced that girl power support when other women agree with us. But how about when we step away from their ideology? Then the girl power support dissipates. And sometimes a woman who was formerly aligned with you attacks you. How can we evolve in an empowered manner? This series will address this question. I've invited guests to share how their experiences allowed them to clarify their values and how this process moved them in directions they never anticipated they'd ever go. But here they are, speaking out in censored spaces, standing tall, despite the slings and arrows, 
and living authentically. That's evolving. That's empowered. To kick off our Empowered Evolving series, I've invited Isabella Malbin to the program. Here's a little bit more about Isabella. Isabella Malbin is a life coach for sovereign women, a trained hypnotist, passionate birth worker, and podcaster. Through one-on-one coaching, Isabella teaches women the tools to stop getting triggered by every freaking thing, cultivate resilience, increase self-confidence, and birth in sovereignty. On the Whose Body Is It? podcast, Isabella interviews radical women from around the world, raising consciousness on the harms of transgender ideology, porn and prostitution, and exposing all the things we've been told are good for us as women. My interview with Isabella Malbin, right after this. Have you heard? You can now listen to my book, Single is the New Black. Don't wear white till it's right. As you know, I wrote the book I wish had been available to me when I was single. So obviously, it's not about how to snag a man. Rather, it's all about how to stay strong amidst single shaming and remain true to yourself and never settle for anything less than an extraordinary relationship. Find it on Audible or iTunes. And for a free sample, check out Chapter 11 of Single is the New Black in Episode 145 of Love and Life. Isabella, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to get into everything. Yeah, I am too. I found you as we find each other nowadays through the socials. And I was really thrilled to come across someone who was speaking out so boldly about some concerns that I've had. I think many of us have had. And yet it seems like in this space, if we try to articulate some concerns that are, are deep and I believe meaningful and with a heart to protect so much of what women have fought for and what our mothers and grandmothers fought for and certainly to protect what we hope to pass on to the women in the next generation. It seems like when we speak to these issues, we can be labeled as bigoted and evil and cruel where that's not where this is coming from and your platform so gracefully and graciously demonstrates that. And you are a feminist and you saw your own journey evolve over the last, I don't know, maybe decade. And so I started listening to your podcast and really love what you're offering this conversation and this discourse. So thank you again for joining me today. And let's start with maybe just how you arrived to where you are now and your platform and your heart and your and your mission. I guess my, my journey into this particular field started when I started to learn about injustices that were happening in birth. I, I, I heard that, you know, we ha- here in the U.S., we have an alarmingly high cesarean rate, that there is this thing called postpartum depression, that women aren't being treated well in their births. And so that piqued my, I guess, my feminist awakening in that mm-hmm. I started to read about birth injustice. And so the the kind of logical conclusion after coming into that was to become a doula. I thought, okay, if I want to do something about this, I already know I love working with mothers and babies because I had been doing childcare since I was about 13. And as an art school grad, I, you know, I I needed to make money and I, and I gravitated towards that work to make fast cash. 
and be able to have, you know, an art studio. And so I knew that I didn't want to do something in the world where I felt disposable. I had done gallery internships. I had been a personal assistant. I had done catering. I did all the kind of things that one does in your early 20s to kind of piece together an income. And I just knew that wasn't for me. So I tried the doula thing. A lot of people discouraged me from getting into that work. They said, you're not going to make a lot of money. It's going to be hard hours. It's going to be a hard lifestyle. You're going to see a lot of tragic stuff, but I did it anyway. I just went with my gut. And that was in 2016 in Brooklyn, New York. And in that training was when I was explicitly introduced to trans ideology. I had been introduced to postmodernism and queer theory in an art school. And I actually did my senior thesis on a kind of transhumanist future. So I was definitely familiar with the concepts, but trans ideology specifically, you know, removing certain words from my language, from my vocabulary, that idea was not at the forefront of my mind in, in that explicit way until my doula training in 2016. And that is where before we even got into the physiology of birth and how to be a doula and what a doula does, we were told that in contemporary society here in New York City with progressive values. We do not use the words woman and mother anymore. And it is inclusive and kind and progressive to say things, to, to use terms like birthing person. That was the biggest one in that training. I then went on to do a fertility awareness teacher training where the terms were more focused on birthing, on a menstruating human and uterus haver. So depending on your the aspect of women's health that I was focusing on, different terms were, were kind of pushed but yes, in that doula training, that is when I really started getting into, I would say, feminism and then later on a radical feminism. Initially, were you like many of us initially we go, OK, I, I consider myself a kind, sensitive person. If this is a language that will be respectful and supportive of someone who's going through something that I don't understand fully, but I certainly can imagine being in that situation and I would want people to honor and respect my experience and what I'm feeling inside. Did you initially then adhere to some of that language and then go later, go, oh, wait a minute, was it that sort of journey for you? Yeah. I mean, at that point, I had not clarified my values. I didn't know what yeah, my values yeah. were. And right. so when you don't know what your values are, you sway wherever the wind takes you. You move right. like seaweed in the ocean. I mean, you, you don't have boundaries when you don't know what your values are. And, you know, I could say okay, I wasn't a sociopath and I wasn't a murderer. And I, and I knew that like cheating was wrong and theft was wrong. You know, I, I had, I had those boundaries kind of loosely, but beyond that, I don't know that I, I knew to treat my mother and father with respect, but beyond that, I, I didn't know really what I stood for in the world. And so because of that, and because of the vulnerable state, like I'm coming in as a student to learn from these experienced experts and so I, I was in a, already a place of, you know, they were already in a place of authority and also my age, I was, I was 24, I was 24 mm -hmm. at the time. And I think that that is important to note because a lot of women who are getting into birth work, doula work are in their early twenties and we have a lot of energy. We have a lot of eagerness and, and we're naive, I think in some ways as well, not to, you know, to sound patronizing, but I, I think there, there is a level of naivete that that we are socialized into as, as kind of liberal feminists. So anyone who's, who's grown up in a kind of cosmopolitan city, you know, middle-class, upper middle-class, we are really kind of distanced from the reality of global female oppression. Now that's not to say that 
mm-hmm. that middle class and upper middle class or upper class women do not suffer injustices at the hands of fathers, uncles, abusive family members, teachers, clergy, whoever, whomever. But there was this kind of ignorance that I think I, I held and my peers held around the industries at play and the systems at play. And, and also I was lacking at that time a class analysis. So what I mean by that is, is seeing other women as seeing one another as part of a, a, a larger class rather than, you know, how I felt at the time, which was very individualistic. You know, if she likes it, if she wants it, it must be healthy. It must be right. Right. If she wants to prostitute herself, if she wants to elect to have a major abdominal birth, I mean, there, it's like it's empowering because she chose it. And, and I'm not a choice feminist anymore. I, I believe that as women, we are actually making very few choices. And until we can see the larger systems at play, it's hard to, I think, actually be agents of free will and start to take responsibility for our lives and our bodies. So so yeah, I was an eager sponge and I totally ate it up. And I also, I think, you know, part of being a doula in the system, so attending women in hospital births and birthing center births and at home with licensed midwife, there is a bit of a power trip. There's a bit of an ego element to it and getting to see the births and, and being chosen to be there. And, and I definitely, along with that, felt a kind of arrogance around telling my peers and family members and correcting them in their language, you know, saying things like, did you know that not all people who give birth are women? And kind of tricking them, kind of seeing and being provocative <laughs> in that way. Uh, I remember really enjoying that. <laughs> I, yeah, I think when we're younger and we have some ideas and we know that they're going to perhaps fly in the face of those ideas of our, the generation above us, we sometimes enjoy like poking a bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd love to connect with you via my weekly newsletter. Joining the Love and Life email list ensures you're the first to know everything going on in the Love and Life family. You'll receive insider perk pricing for consultations and events, and it's the best way to keep in touch when I do what the research suggests is very healthy and take breaks from social media. Subscribe on my website, loveandlifemedia.com. And as a bonus, you'll get my free Empowered Dating Playbook. In that context, were there some pivotal moments that caused you to go, wait a minute, as you said, I'm an eager sponge, you're young. Like you said, you hadn't clarified your values. I love that you've identified some of your journey as a values clarification process because I talk about values a lot. One of my psychotherapeutic orientations I love is ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, which is all about values clarification and then moving through circumstances that may be undesirable, may be awkward, uncomfortable, and moving through those, taking committed action towards your values, even when it's, like I said, uncomfortable and perhaps puts you in in contrast with some other values that are around in the community or wherever the case may be. Were there some pivotal moments where you went, oh, wait a minute, this, no, this is off for me? Yes, yes. That's such a great question. The first, this isn't for me, uh, was the going to the hospital births. I mean, witnessing abuse over and over and over and having it be normalized by my peers, by my teachers, 
by my mentors. There were very few people at that time who would hold space and, and kind of name and agree with me and validate, you know, the what I was seeing and, and kind of calling it out as, as abuse and as violation against birthing women. And so I gravitated towards hypnobirthing, which is a, a childbirth education course and philosophy, which emphasizes natural birth. They say that and when I, well, I would say more so vaginal birth without epidural. I don't think a natural birth is actually possible in that system because there's nothing natural about being surveilled. There's nothing natural about bright lights during birth. There's nothing natural about strangers' fists inside you. You know, there's nothing natural about that. There's nothing birthy about that either. So yeah, I gravitated towards hypnobirthing, which said there is a hierarchy. A baby coming out of the vagina is better than it being surgically removed from a mother's womb. Breastfeeding is better than formula. It is. Mm-hmm. There is an optimal design for, for us as mammals. I mean, mm-hmm. and I, I found that so refreshing. And and the world, the dualist space that I was coming from, you know, would kind of look at that and say, okay, well, that's judgmental. Your mommy shaming. Mm-hmm. Fed is best. You know, we can't mm-hmm. know what women's life circumstances are. And that is true. But... The in, without looking at the industry that is normalizing formula and surgical births and, you know, now what we see with the trans agenda, you know, women cutting off their breasts, having their healthy breast tissue removed, we have to be able to look at the system and name harm, right? We can't just conceal it and kind of suppress that ping because we don't want to offend a woman, right? I would never shame a woman for especially one who's birthing in captivity, who's been barraged and, and told this and that and surveilled, you know, for her to throw her hands up and say, just take the baby out. I've been at many births where the woman just totally surrendered uh, to to the abuse because it was so tiring. It was, there was so much fear mongering. And so, yeah, I would never judge a woman for also wanting to be anesthetized in that context as well. Mm-hmm. I think if I were forced to birth in that context, I would probably want to numb out as well. So, so yeah, so hypnobirthing was the first kind of like departure, I guess, of me saying, Oh, finally, I found a program that like says that there, there is an optimal way to give birth. And it's okay to say that. And if I stepped into this field to improve birth outcomes, I want to do that. And so hypnobirthing, what it is successful at doing is, you know, reducing the number of epidurals, reducing the number of C-sections. I mean, statistically, women who take that program do have better outcomes in that context. Do I think that's good enough? No, which is why I don't teach that that method anymore. I've kind of really gone radical and kind of only am serving women birthing outside the system rather than trying to create, you know, reform within that space. And and that is something I, I really learned from one of my teachers and, and best friends, Emily Saldea who runs the Free Birth Society, she really woke me up to whether I wanted to be a reformist or a radical. And I decided I wanted to be a radical. So yeah, that starting to step away from euphemistic terms as well was a, was a turning point of departure. Within the dual industry, mainstream birth industry, there's a term called belly birth. It's a euphemism for a major abdominal surgery. And I refused to use it. And I critiqued it in a, in a Facebook group for my doula training organization. I was just slammed. I mean, women were sending me photos of their C-sections going, this is birth, this is birth, this is birth. Okay, yes, the baby was born. But that's distinct from a baby coming out of one's vagina and women who have C-sections know that more than anyone. So I find it actually quite infantilizing and patronizing to say, Oh, you did a really good belly birth, you know, mm-hmm. like 
things like gentle fed is best I mentioned. So all these terms, I just started to say like, how, who is this serving? And, and the whole um, cesarean awareness month, which where belly birth, I think started really came from the, originally it started as a kind of educational campaign of like, what is a C-section? Like what is actually happening in that surgery? But it has totally morphed into a campaign to normalize major abdominal surgery as birth, which it is not. Right. And we know that it is widely over overdone and women are subjected to it against their will every day in this country. Yeah. And I'm just starting to hear this is not a space that I have many connections in, but I'm starting to hear some women coming to some similar conclusions as you just spoke to and feeling let down, betrayed to your point, abused by a system that, oh, well, let's schedule the C-section because that's when the doctor can do it. And he's going on vacation in two weeks. So that kind of thing. And I'm, I'm simplifying the matter because that's all that I really know about it. But I'm hearing some people begin to speak to this. And I'm sure it's because of the movement, the radical piece that you're part of helping give voice to this and letting women go, wait, I have a right to be irritated about this. This was not how it was supposed to be. But it's that piece of judgment that you... I love that question. I wrote it down. Who is this serving? These euphemisms. Who are we serving? And then as a feminist, I'm sure you're starting to look back. It's a system that is not serving women. And yet women are drinking the Kool-Aid and then judging other women for speaking out against it. Yeah. Yeah. And, And like we were taking money. All doulas know who the abusive doctors are. All doulas know which hospitals are better than other hospitals. And when we say better, we mean less abusive. Like doulas know this, but if you're serving women in the system, it's not hard to make a decent amount of money. And it's not hard to to feel like you have a purpose. And so I walked away from being the hypnobirthing doula. I, I did really well as a doula. Women knew me as the hypnobirthing doula. They knew to come to me if they wanted to avoid or mitigate abuse in, in hospitals. And they knew I would, you know, tell it to them straight. And, you know, it was hard. It's hard to walk away from that. And I, I think that the doulas who are, are most skilled at appeasing abusive doctors are like the most desirable, which is so sad because women end up hiring like guard dogs, you know, at their birth. But at the end of the day, we are, we're, we're, we're powerless. We really are in that system. And I think, you know, anyone who's, who's, who's a doula, who's maybe listening to this, you know, think about like, why would they let you in? Mm -hmm. Why would, why would the hospital system let you in there if you were a threat? You know, the, the times that I spoke out the most in that context, I was never thrown out, but I was threatened a couple times. I was, I've been yelled at by doctors. If you actually want to, you know, put your hand in front of a scalpel or tell the woman that she's about to get an episiotomy about her con- without her consent, that's what you are facing. You are facing a, a total disruption, cortisol levels going, you know, out of the roof. And, and in those times, actually, where I stood up to doctors and I advocated a kind of a lame way for my clients, it didn't end well for anyone. It often resulted in me becoming the villain, you know, even though that was what I was hired to do. So it's a very confusing dynamic. You know, who is the authority? Who is the victim here? What does this advocate even do? Right. And it was just very, it's very, very all kind of muddled. And I find that that same kind of muddling uh, and kind of confusion and illusion of power exists 
within trans ideology, within narratives around porn and prostitution, and also, you know, in, in birth control as well. So yeah, back to the kind of the clarity of what my values were. It's mm-hmm. when you're in that muddled space, distress, and, and I think trauma be, feels... The amount of therapy and massages and body work and doula support groups that exist for for us to like process the trauma that we've been a part of and witnessed. It's just, it's a whole, yeah, it's a whole industry and it, it wasn't sustainable for me. When you were speaking, I kept thinking about who do we trust? We've been raised to trust these institutions. And the more that you peel back these layers, we realize that back to your other point, who is this serving? Who is this institution serving? And so often it's not the person who they claim to be serving. The hospital's whole entire raison d'etre is to serve mm-hmm. their patients. And then you go, but are they? Or are they serving the doctor's schedule or the big pharmaceutical company who needs to make a lot of money so you better be hopping these patients up on drugs? If you have just a few seconds to help me out, I would so appreciate it. You can do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts, giving us a five-star rating and a few sentences of review that helps others find the program and join the Love and Life family. Through this experience, you started to have, I would say, I mean, from, from observing what you're sharing, a bit of an awakening, which then... When we start to peel back a couple layers, sometimes it's the beginning. It's the catalyst that gets us to start questioning some other beliefs that we've had in place or institutions we thought we could trust. And so it sounds like that moved you into a space as a feminist to start going, well, wait a minute. What about this trans ideology? And what does that mean as a feminist to suggest that being a woman is really, if someone decides they're a woman, they are a woman? Speak to that evolution of your journey and and your ideology and your philosophy and understanding of what it means to be a woman and a feminist. Yeah. So the, the other departure, and I I should say that the, I I come, I'm coming from a a naturalist kind of philosophy. Like I I believe that all people are born intact, whole and perfect. Right. And that what we need throughout our lives is nourishment. And so with that perspective, you know, I'm totally against uh, circumcision. I I don't believe vaccines are are necessary for our wholeness and intactness. I am totally opposed, obviously, to puberty blockers and and hormonal birth control and all sorts of, you know, additives, right? Like a mentor said to me the other day, she had a lot of women coming for amphetamines and, you know, Prozac and, you know, wanting prescriptions. And she said, she said to them, you don't have an amphetamine deficiency disorder, right? Like women who are taking testosterone to cure their quote, gender dysphoria do not have a testosterone deficiency. I mean, it's, in, it's a wild thing to, to believe it's, it's, an, it's distinct from something like diabetes where there's like an insulin, like lack of insulin production or, or inability to regulate insulin. That's not what we're talking about here or like thyroid. And even that I think could be contested and maybe debated, but I was teaching reproductive health and I was training with an organization that was really took a pretty firm stance against hormonal birth control. And so I was leading these workshops, educating women on just what hormonal birth control does to the mind and the body and introducing fertility awareness methods. So how to, you know, monitor your cycle and control your fertility, whether that's avoiding pregnancy or achieving pregnancy 
or just kind of getting a grip on what's going on with your hormonal levels, thyroid function through charting your fertile signs. And there was an open critique about hormones in that context, but not hormones for women who believe that they're stuck in the wrong body. For that, we couldn't touch. That we couldn't go go near. And so that was weird to me. That was very weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We pick and choose. Just, yeah. yeah. And like a drug like Lupron, you know, I had a friend in my early 20s who had really horrendous endometriosis and she was put on Lupron by her conventional endocrinologist and healthcare team that was almost exclusively, you know, it was allopathic. And I watched what she went through. I, I watched her go into early menopause. I watched her have one of her ovaries removed. And it was a really horrendous experience for, for her body at, at such a young age. And, and this is the same drug that they're putting children on. Lupron is a puberty blocker. Lupron shuts down the reproductive system. And, and so in the case of endometriosis, the idea is to shut down estrogen production because there is a there is an excess of estrogen, which is leading to the endometrium, the lining of the uterus growing outside of the uterus and, and forming kind of tumors in, in other places in the body. And we would, you know, we would talk about in the in these reproductive health workshops, you know, conditions like endometriosis and alternative treatments and, and just yeah, I just, I just couldn't understand this open critique in this one way and, and it not being held to the same standards. And we're critiquing this industry for this issue, but but the industry all of a sudden gets a free pass for this issue. It, it just didn't, it didn't add up. So that was another departure. I also had a boyfriend at the time <laughs> who worked for Russia Today, who I've since been interviewed by. And I, and I thought that was very edgy. I thought that was very, I was actually kind of scared. I, I wasn't scared of him as a man. I, I didn't think he was violent or, I mean, he was actually one of the kindest guys I, I've ever met, but his ideas scared me. When he said that, he, he, I remember at one point he said to me, and I was deep in the indoctrination at this point still, but he said something to me, I don't think children should be like watching drag queens. And I just thought, oh, you think watching drag queens turns a kid gay? Like you are so regressive. You are so not feminist. And I remember actually my attraction kind of, I, I remember feeling less attracted to him when he would share these kind of like radical feminist uh, values. And and, one, and we got into a fight one time about how we would raise our hypothetical trans child. And I said, I would affirm. And he said, no, I would, I would, would not do anything. And when they're 18, then they could, they could make the decision. And I was horrified, but I, but looking back, I, when I thought of the word affirmation and when I thought about affirming our hypothetical trans child, I was not thinking about the reality of what that is, which is the severing of body parts, literal dismembering. Yes. Right. So we're, we're fragmenting the, the child in a psychological sense, but in a literal sense, their flesh is being permanently mutilated. Their brain chemistry is being permanently changed. These are not reversible things. Even a woman who goes on hormone birth control for one year, that affects her body, that affects her reproductive system. We are self-healing beings, yes, but when you're taking a child that, that has barely has not even fully developed. I mean, th this is serious stuff. And, and, and back to the, the Lupron issue, you know, there are Facebook groups filled with women who were put on Lupron in their late teens, early 20s for reproductive health issues. So outside of the trans stuff, 
whose teeth are now falling out. I mean, this is what this drug does to your bone density. So we know that we know these are dangerous pharmaceutical drugs and we're giving them to children. But okay, then you go down the vaccine rabbit hole. You're like, hey, there's a mass poison, illegal mass poisoning of children happening. Of course, this would happen. So, you know, if you if you believe that that's true, Mm -hmm. the trans stuff doesn't seem as nuts. As a psychologist, I have been since the beginning of my career and I've shared this with my community So Prozac came out in 87, I believe, and I think it was FDA approved at that time. And then it kind of really got into the therapeutic community in the early 90s. And that's when I was getting out of my master's of clinical psych. So training to be a therapist and it was blowing up and everyone's going to conferences and reading books. And I was just so blessed to have a father who, it's just a little weird. It's not weird at all, except for the way that things have been politicized over the last few years, which we could go in that direction at some point, but probably not today. But he was a college professor, liberal, Democrat, very free thinking, and was the one who trained me Mm. to always be concerned about big corporations, A, any big money making entity that has something that you should do, be suspect. Is it to benefit them or to benefit you? And certainly pharmaceutical corporations. He was like going to the health food store all the time. We're having wheat germ and wheatgrass and granola. And we, we had no cold medicine in my house. If we had a cold, it, two vitamin C, a panathetic acid. So I was very primed, even as a young therapist, to be very suspect. And I read a book called Talking Back to Prozac by Dr. Peter Bregan, a psychiatrist who's been a, a very loud voice of truth and reason in this space and has just boldly gone against big pharma, which is a big fight to take on, as you know. And so getting back to the piece that you're talking about, it actually makes sense. Even what we're seeing now, which I think is waking some people up because some people who would go, well, that's the vaccine schedule. And that's what my pediatrician says we have to do. And so we do it thinking you're being the best parent possible because you're keeping your kid on the schedule that the FDA has said your child must have in order to be safe and healthy. And I think it was Kara Dansky, who I was hearing on some interview talking about pharma is really, they're sponsoring and funding a lot of trans groups because if they get you on puberty blockers when you're eight, you're a customer for life, I'm quite sure. Because when you're 68, trying to maintain the appearance of the gender or the sex that you're not, I'm sure you, I don't know, but I would guess you still have to be on drugs and and if it's them. Oh, yeah. It it never goes away. I mean, you are looking at a completely medicalized life. And, you know, all we see on social media is like the after, right? We're not looking at the post-op. We're not looking at the drainage tubes. We're not looking at the bacterial infections. We're not looking at the teeth falling out. We're not looking at all the malpractice cases for, for, you know, that these clinics, these practitioners have, you know, who have mutilated these children. I mean, yeah, it's, it is, it is a total industry. And I think we're in a, it's difficult because people, I think are medicalized already in some realm, whether they're on hormonal birth control or on Prozac, or they believe that vaccines are are safe and effective or whatever it is, there, there is a trust. And so to question one part is to contend with your, not just your values, but your relationships, mm-hmm. your line of work, your career, the institutions that you've entrusted. Maybe you have dedicated 20 years 
towards a philosophy that you're now walking away from. I mean, that's scary. Like, I, I mean, I guess it was hard. It was like kind of hard for me to, to step away, but I wasn't that deep in it. You know, I'd only been a doula for a couple years. I was living at home. You know, I, I could kind of stop cold turkey and be like, peace out. You know, I'm going to take a hit. I'm going to live at home. I'm going to figure out what's next. I'm going to take a beat. But, but in that, yeah, I mean, I, I call them old world, you know, and this is a part of, part of this reevaluation of your values and clarifying your values, which is, you know, can feel heartbreaking and, and infuriating at times is the rearrangement of the world around you. So, so it's you and your idea of the world, but it's also how, you're going to relate to people moving forward. And that includes friendships, romantic partnerships, relationships with family members, institutions, and, and all of that. And so I, I speak a lot to that in, in my work. And, and that is what I'm coaching women on at this point. That is kind of the, the, the other side of this is, okay, we, we have a bound, we have a, we have a big problem with boundaries. We have a big problem with saying what we don't like as women because of our conditioning. I don't want that. I don't want to do that right now. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I think to your point about, and this takes us a little bit into the last two years, I've had a lot of friends they say things like, and I get it. They're like, I just don't want to believe because I'll challenge them saying all the things. They're like, I just don't want to believe that the FDA and the CDC and the NIH can't be trusted. Mm-hmm. I, be- I want to believe that my government is looking out for my best interests. And I'm like, I would like to believe that too. I think we all would like to believe that. But I'm not prepared to pretend that something is what it isn't just to feel comfortable and safe while lying to myself. But I understand why people do. I get it. They're like, the world is crazy and complex. And if I can just trust these institutions and whatever they say, I do it. Give me the 10th booster. I don't care. I'm just not wired that way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, and so when I come across work like yours, I'm like, okay, there's probably more layers that I need to peel back. And that's why I was drawn to your work and drawn to your podcast. It's so great connecting with all of you via the podcast. And I would love to meet you IRL. If your organization is looking for a speaker for your next event, check out my website, go to the speaking page and see the content that I love to talk about. Just like on the podcast, in my speeches, I cover a wide array of topics grounded in psych research, of course. I'd love to meet you and share strategies for thriving in all realms of love and life with you and your organization. I cannot recommend Dr. Karen enough as your speaker at your event. As my keynote speaker, she completely set the tone of compassion, self-love, and authenticity that bled into everything we did for the rest of the event. She was incredibly prepared and present and went above and beyond when it came to sharing the event with her audience. Her knowledge, magnetic energy, and expertise while on stage is one thing. It will be everything you'd hope for and more for your audience. But her giving spirit and willingness to do more than simply show up when it's time to go on is icing on the cake. She walks her talk, and by the end of working with her, I was wishing she lived down the block from me for weekly meetups. For more information and to book me to speak at your next event, contact my producer, Tim May. Tim at loveandlifemedia.com. 
back when I was a young therapist, in the day it was transvestite or there was another word for it in the DSM. I'm not a big fan of the DSM because that just evolves with whatever the pharmaceutical companies want, what drug they want to push. I'm not a big fan of diagnoses in general. I prefer to recognize that the human condition and the human experience involves a lot of fluctuation of emotions. And of course, we've never identified any serotonin deficiency in our brain that would necessitate an SSRI and all those concerns. Mm -hmm. But I think they're so disempowering as women and as anyone, as men, because to tell someone you're biologically screwed up and that's why you'll need to be hopped up on this drug, which then of course does, as you've spoken to, does start to biologically screw you up because you're putting this foreign substance in your system. So as you can tell, I get fired up about such things. But when we're talking about trans communities, and I think it's really hard for some people to, like you said, just say, no, there's a boundary here. A man who believes he's a woman is not a woman. That's two distinct things. Your body has either an XX or an XY, unless you have some sort of chromosomal problem, like Klinefelter syndrome and some of these, or intersex individuals. Otherwise, your body is telling you whether you're male or female. And if we resist this movement and this infringement upon female spaces, or say something that five minutes ago would have been completely obvious, it's not fair for men to compete against women in athletics. But if you suggest something like that, so many people will immediately paint you as a bigot, you're evil, you're cruel, you don't care about people. And I'm like, how about I advocate for the female swimmers who worked their entire lives and now was denied the first place trophy? Even thinking about a couple of years ago, I think, was it Glamour Magazine that had Caitlyn Jenner as the woman of the year? I'm like, so now the best woman of the year is in fact a man? I'm like, how much more oppressive can you get? my thought over the last several years is where are the feminists? Like if you identify as a feminist, why are you not advocating for women's rights? Because to have men beat all the women and all the things, whether it's the cover of the magazine or the swimming meet, we're not advocating for women. <laughs> we're going back like hundreds of years. Yeah. So the feminists are here. They've been okay. saying this. <laughs> They've been saying this since the 70s. Janice Raymond wrote a book called The Transsexual Empire in the 70s. Really? That warned us of exactly what is happening right now. So, you know, even 10, 20 years ago, radical feminists were saying, think it through. Mary Lou just said this, too, but Mary Lou Singleton is a, a midwife and a medical freedom activist who uh, is one of my mentors. And I just had her. On, on my podcast to, to talk about abortion and what will happen to women if, if medical abortion is criminalized. And I've had her on also to talk about trans ideology. She's one of the OG feminists who was saying, you know, like, think it through. We know you want to be nice, but have you really thought it through? There are going to be men in women's prisons. There are going to be men taking women's sports titles. There are going to be men in women's locker rooms and bathrooms. You know, fetishes are going to be normalized. Like, think it through. And, and so... These women, you know, Mary Lou being one of them, have been silenced. They've been censored. They've been vilified. Many of them have been doxxed, been fired. You know, Karadansky, who you mentioned, who was a lawyer with the ACLU, was fired from the ACLU. A lifetime career, you just ripped from, from under you. So so this is where they are. <laughs> They're here. And one thing that, that, that we find infuriating, and I'm going to say we because I know that they agree with me on this, is... Uh, to see right-wing men 
like like Matt Walsh, for example, who are all of a sudden now the spokes people for gender, the, the gender identity crisis and the gender identity industry. So we are here and I, and I understand why women think we are not here because we are <laughs> smushed yeah. to the bottom, but we, we are here and there are, there are many of us and, and organizations like Wolf who have been, you know, Wolf has been on the front line, Women's Liberation Front, Women's Declaration International, Feminist Current, Redux Mag. I mean, th- these women ha- have been around and, and they are working tirelessly holding it down on a legislative capacity. I, my, I guess lane of genius is the consciousness raising. That's where I found to be most effective. And that's what I, I love to do. And then helping women individually work through their own, you know, kind of awakenings and holding their hands through that process. But we are here. But yes, mainstream feminism, what you see at the Women's March is not that. Yeah. Well, and that's the other the other one. And you mentioned the ACLU. That's the other one. I've been like, where are you? Mm-hmm. Where are you? And certainly over the last two years, I've been, where is the ACLU protecting bodily autonomy and civil liberties? They're, no, like, they are so far gone. They're gone. So far gone. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so troubling and so, so confusing. And I think to your point about consciousness raising and the resistance is... <laughs> frustrating, but it always is. And I understand, like I said earlier, I understand why people, it's about safety. Mm-hmm. And when we begin to pull back the curtain, we have to tolerate a feeling unsafe and looking to other sources that we can trust. And that's why trying to have conversations like these, I'm hoping that someone may go, you know, that just feels off to me. Like, I don't love that Charlotte's Daughter and Sex in the City reboot is going to be... It's been, like, I don't love that, but I hate... You know, that's because I'm stuck in my old Sex in the City days. Right. <laughs> like, right. But, but to, to go, wait, maybe trust that instinct that doesn't love that. And maybe mm-hmm. doesn't think that affirming is the loving thing to do for a parent. You know, I read Abigail Schreier's Irreversible Damage. The, the book is beautifully written and so well-researched and very compassionate if mm-hmm. you can see it through that lens. And she interviews folks who transition, you know, old school transsexuals who are also saying, please do not do this to children. The most recent research shows that our brains aren't fully developed until our late 20s for men, for Mm -hmm. sure. Let's let the brain fully form and then make some decisions about such things later if that is what you want to do. But for children, I mean, she likens it and I would concur in the 80s, adolescent girl hysteria manifested in eating disorders and starving ourselves, sticking our fingers down our throats. In the 90s, we moved into cutting. And she likens this to the next wave of adolescent girl mm-hmm. hysteria. Becoming a woman is dicey. Our bodies change. We get attention that we kind of like, but then we're really freaked out by it. It's a big deal to become a woman. And there's a lot of angst involved that we now medicalize instead of normalize. And she frames this this trans with the younger children as part of that. When you encounter someone who says to you, your lack of empathy is appalling. So you want to protect women's spaces. But what about these poor people who believe they're like, what about them? And certainly, I mean, there's two different issues here. There's children 
that's one concern. But then let's say the 35-year-old man who believes he's a woman and just feels alienated. Well, you won't accept me as women and I don't feel like I'm accepted by men because I'm not really a man. I'm a female trapped in a man's body. When someone comes at you with that kind of, you are so cruel not to be inclusive and embracing this individual, how do you respond? Women having boundaries is not bigoted or mean. Knowing men from women is not mean. It's just a basic human instinct. Just as two-year-olds are taught, this is a chair and this is a table, this is a banana, this is an apple, they are taught these are men and these are women. Actually, they're not even taught that. We, they just know. If, you, if, you, if a toddler is like lost in a grocery store, little children don't run up to strange men. They, they run up to the people that look like their mommy. So that's a woman with other kids, a woman uh, maybe without kids, a grandma, maybe a 14-year-old. Like they're going to go to their point of reference for safety. So <clears throat> to suggest that this is bigoted, to suggest that women – asking for privacy while undressing. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous. I mean, I, I don't even entertain the idea that I could be bigoted or, or racist or hateful because it's, it's just simply untrue. And things that are simply untrue and ludicrous don't upset me and don't trigger me because there's no part of me that believes that what I'm doing, protecting sex-based rights for women and girls is mean or bad or wrong, quite the opposite. I would ask that person to tell me why women should let men in their private spaces. I mean, let that person tell me how a human could be stuck in the wrong body. Really, I'm, I'm interested to hear that that religious perspective, that, that, that superstitious or whatever you want to call it, like perspective, like what, what do you talk, what does it mean to be stuck in the wrong body? How does that work? What is that exactly? Because all I can see is the body that you have. All I know is the flesh that I'm in. That's all anyone will ever know. So the idea that, that something is inherently wrong and that, that the world must dance around or tiptoe around one man's idea of himself not matching the body that he's in. I mean, the, the level of narcissism, I can't even begin to imagine the exhaustion that that person might feel throughout the day trying to control everyone and everything around him or her to fulfill that fantasy. And, and that is what the detransitioned women who I've worked with have told me, that that existence, that incessant lying to oneself and bullying of others is exhausting. And I don't like bullies. I don't like narcissists and anyone who's going to tell me that I need to be uncomfortable to make them feel better. I, I would say that person needs to start taking responsibility and, and needs to start looking at their own mental health and whether we want to call it a mental disorder or delusion. I, I think of it simply as an untruth. Hmm. Everyone knows this. Everyone knows Laverne Cox is a man. No one is confused about what sex Laverne Cox is. So, so why are we? Why are we pretending? I mean, we're all humans. We're all mammals. We we know 
who the men are and who the women are. And we need to know this, not just for our protection, but for procreation. And, and you know, one thing that particularly is disturbing about the gaslighting of children on this matter, you know, children are not being punished in schools for, quote, misgendering yes. their peers. So children who know who the women and the men are and who say who the women, the, the males and the females are in this case, they're punished. Imagine being born to a woman who has cut her breasts off, who grows a beard. And imagine being that little kid in the grocery store losing mm-hmm. that parent who is the mother, but but maybe you call them the dad. And your point of reference, your point of safety is is people with beards, people who wear stereotypically male clothes, and you run to the nearest man. I mean, we are talking about serious psychological confusion and invasion. But interestingly, one of the detransitioned women who I interviewed told me that in her neighborhood, when she presented as male, the little kids would still flock to her. They still knew, they knew her maternal instinct. They could sense that they, they knew she was still a woman. So there's the flip side of that. But but that, but that is a confusion. And she would tell me that she would purposely not engage with them as to not con- further confuse their senses. She didn't want them thinking that all, you know, like people who have beards who are walking dogs in the neighborhood are safe individuals to run up to. And, and so she would actually resist interacting with them because there was that, you know, she didn't want to continue to confuse them. So there's just, there's, there's so much. So yeah, I would ask, you know, I would say anyone who's worried about being called a bigot or hateful or any of those things, you know, to do some work to say, like, is there a part of you that still believes that you are on the wrong side of history? Is there a part of you that, you know, listening to me speak or or you share Karen as well, like that there's still that there's a part of, you know, us that's not right, because that if that is triggering you, if that's coming up for you when people are saying that, then maybe you need to do more research. Maybe you need to go down the rabbit holes. You know, maybe you need to do the things to validate your stance on the matter. And until that happens, until you feel solid in that way, yeah, you're going to be shakable. I love how you, even in the beginning of our conversation, just talked about values and that when we don't know our values, we are prone to be tossed around with whatever the trend du jour and that it's a boundary violation. That theme keeps coming up, which of course is so such a, an important term that we talk about in the psychotherapeutic community of, about boundaries and knowing who we are. And and I'm sure you've experienced this, you know, this female like, live out loud, girl, speak your truth. And then you say something and they're like, no, not that though, <laughs> right? Not that girl. <laughs> I mean, because even the radical feminism, and I don't know these terms, but the turf, and that that's a pejorative term, correct? Mm-hmm. That you mm-hmm. are... You're not inclusive and these sorts of things. So it's so funny how it's girl power until a woman does what women have never been permitted to do. Say something that goes against the grain. And I think, oh my gosh, are we, we're regressing Mm -hmm. as women. And that makes, it makes me so sad. This topic can really become overwhelming for me and disheartening because as exactly as you spoke to just the, the lies and, and people living in lies and I love that you're letting us know from the women who you've worked with, who've detransitioned, the hope. And so maybe as we wrap up, could you share some more of the stories of people you've worked with who've gone, 
wow, those lies got exhausting. And I understand where I was and the journey back home to myself was a really powerful and empowering experience. So do you have any vignettes to share with us to leave us on a more positive note? Yes, yes. I I would say one of the stories that stands out is a woman I spoke to from, I believe she was in North Carolina who I interviewed. Her name is Audrey. Um, And that interview was available on my podcast. And she she was only 19 when we, when we spoke and, and she had gone through, she had gone in and out in a really kind of short uh, amount of time, but she, she spoke to a kind of spiritual awakening that she had where she said she, she met God, you know, and, and I think she means that not in a, I don't think she means it in a um, patriarchal religious sense, but, you know, or from a Christian or Judaic standpoint, but she, she met some kind of higher power in her process and she got really, really sick from the drugs. And that's what woke her up. She had almost had, I think it was maybe almost liver failure. She, she, she was really, she was kind of dying actually from, from all the testosterone that she was injecting. And yeah, so she talked about coming back into her body and coming home again. And this is a term this is a phrase that I've heard a number of women share is the idea of coming back home, finding sisterhood, realizing that there is a place for them in being a woman, you know, that they can be nonconformist. They can be lesbians. They can hate pink. They can want to be, you know, uh, plumbers like that, that there is a space for them and that, you know, women before them have been through, Variations of medical abuse, misogyny, homophobia, all, all the things. And so realizing that we are not alone and, and that our pain actually isn't necessarily even specific to us, that, that it is a shared pain, mm-hmm. each with its own unique journey and, and awakening, but that, that, that what they have gone through is, is not so dissimilar than the women who came before them and it's just a, a new flavor and, and perhaps a new level of invasion. But that embodiment, you know, even after extreme medical abuse is possible and that healing is possible. And that, oh gosh, I, I'm not feeling so hopeful today, but but I would say that what we're able to hold as women, you know, I think the abuse against, I would say the abuse against women in this flavor is one of the biggest medical scandals of, of our time. And maybe one of the most extreme examples of misogyny that, that we've seen because it is self-inflicted in some ways. And I think that's what is so disturbing about it. But I would say whether it's the women who have lost custody of their daughters for not affirming them or the women who have had their, their uteruses removed from their bodies and only to realize that that wasn't the solution to their early child sexual abuse, you know, that these women continue to be warriors and and that they are speaking out and they have really alchemized their pain and their trauma into action. And I think what, what choices they're really at that point. And, and that I think on some level, anyone who's at the front lines or kind of in this, I think we do feel like this is a kind of a destiny that we are fated to, to do this. And this is our, our time to, to speak on this. And I think, you know, that, that it, for some of us, it takes, for the detransitioned women, especially, it takes pretty extreme circumstances to be able to speak out and, and to have a, a shift and, and the courage that takes. And 
and that not everyone is a warrior and that's okay. You know, like not everyone is going to want to be so clear on their values and that's okay because we are all different and not everyone is meant to be on the front lines and that is okay. And if so, anyone is listening to this and they want to get involved and they want to feel hopeful, you can support, you know, many of our, our work, you can share this episode. There are so many things you can do to spread awareness. You can, you know, in a material sense and, and also just sharing on social media, I think is, is actually quite effective in raising consciousness. So I'm sorry, I don't have more kind of hopeful things to, to share at this point, but, but it's, I guess it's highlighted to me. I mean, what I thought women could hold in the context of birth and the abuse that women walk around with every day, just unnamed. I mean, I never thought it would, it would be worse than what I was seeing in, in births. And again, I haven't worked in human trafficking. I imagine that's a whole nother level of, of horrendousness, but, but that, wow, they have really beat us down and look at how strong we are coming away from the, Oh, can't we just be nice? Can't we just be inclusive? Like, because we, as women, I think most of us are, (laughs) the majority of us are not sociopathic. It's hard for us in some ways to say, like, take it to the extreme. Sociopaths do this. They they take things to the extreme and they, they try to scale it. Right. And so we need to think about the, when we're thinking about these issues, like we can't just individualize it. Oh, hey, I know that one guy who got breast implants and he was really nice to me. Okay, well, that could be true. It could be true that that man is not a rapist. But how are we supposed to know the nice transsexuals or the nice trans, quote, trans women from the, the ones who are there to do, a, to do harm? How are we supposed to know in a private setting? And so we have to take it to these extremes because we've seen where it's gone. We have not seen men, men who call themselves women become radical feminists, uh, the front lines combating the brothels and porn and prostitution. No, the opposite. We have seen a total display of misogyny and whether that's in the prisons or the sports or holding titles or being voted woman of the year, like we have seen a total abuse of this, of the status of, of transness and yeah, women, I think need to know that, that, that children are being taken out of their mother's custodies for mothers refusing to put them on testosterone at, at the age of 12. And, and so, yeah, we need to know these, we really need to be aware of the extremes because it's, mm-hmm. because this is where it goes. It's, we have to think about how it's affecting us as a class, as a society, rather than, you know, your personal relationship to the one quote trans woman that, you know, and, and if you are afraid of betraying him or, you know, him thinking you're a turf, again, I would ask who, you know, who is your loyalty to? Yeah. And it's when you speak about the women who are having their children removed, I, I think I, I liken it to because of the, the parallels that Abigail Schreier makes in her book. I liken it to in the 80s if a young girl was bulimic and a mom would be like, oh, you want to binge? Let's go to the convenience store and we'll get a bunch Mm -hmm. of Cheetos and Doritos. And oh, you need some ice cream? Oh, I'll buy that for you. Here, there you go. Go ahead. Eat it all. Oh, do you need something to help you throw up? Here's Take this ruler. It'll help you throw up. It's easier than your finger. Mm -hmm. We have to see it that way. If we don't see it that way, we're lying to ourselves and we're congratulating parents for abusing their children. Like where, another, where are they? (laughs) Where are the parents being parents? 
And, and Abigail, she talks about it in, in the book that the parents come at this with the most empathy and the biggest hearts and they have been brainwashed as well. And, and, and it goes back to that medicalization of everything, which goes back to things we've talked about already, but I know we're running out of time, but Isabella, I just want to thank you so much for this conversation like I said before, I think the consciousness raising that you are doing is so critical. And as you said, it's been your journey to realize your path and your mission and your purpose. And I'm so thankful for the work you're doing. Where can listeners learn more about what you are up to and, and connect with you and perhaps work with you? Please let them know where to find you. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, I, yeah, I really enjoyed this this conversation. And it's so nice to speak with someone who's in the mental health field who is brave enough to, to speak this into the world because, yeah, it's there. there is quite a protocol that the, the doctors, therapists, even coaches, doulas, you know, are asked to kind of comply with and, and to say, no, like, I am not doing this. Like, this does not fit my ethics is is really major. So I'm glad to know you're, you're out in the world. And I know that there are others who are who are dissenters as well, but but maybe haven't spoken up yet. So I hope that, that women are inspired by, by what you've done. I know that they, they are. So where to find me? Everything is on my website, whosebodyisit.com. I'm on Instagram at whosebodyisit. And my podcast is available on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. I have some free resource guides for anyone who is new to this debate and wants to read and watch things and documentaries. And I have a gender critical resource guide that's available. Also, anyone who resonates with the, the birth element of, of what we were talking about, I have a pregnancy, birth and postpartum resource guide as well. That's all free. And those are just a, a compilation of all my favorite resources and, and links that I've collected over the past six years. And... Yeah. And, and I do work with some men, but in that case, they're family members of trans identified youth. But yeah, I am like 99% of the people that I'm working with are, are women. But every now and then I, I will have a session with a, with a male, a male bodied person, a prostate haver. <laughs> prostate haver. A sperm producer. See, Isabella, you left us laughing. <laughs> Even this, <laughs> this was a bit somber and heavy. You left us giggling. So thank you for that. <laughs> and thanks again for your time today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. The love and life hack for this week is empowered evolving. It's possible, but you'll need values, clarification, commitment, and courage. As always, I send you the biggest thank you for being a part of the Love and Life family. I so appreciate you and want to serve you the best I can. I've been answering your questions now via Reels because that seems to be what Instagram likes nowadays. And we've also rolled out a new mini session. If you just have one question, one or two questions that would only take about 15 minutes to address, Elliot and I are here to answer your questions in a mini session, which is a way to get your questions addressed sooner than later because when they come in for a reel, it can take me a little bit of time before I'm able to get to the question. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen anderson Averill, And until next time, make it a great week. Love. 
Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abram. <laughs>